I have absolutely no idea what we're doing here, or what I'm doing here, or what this place is about, but I am determined to enjoy myself. Now you want to talk about reading? Let's talk about reading. Let me tell you the days of high adventure. The book served as a passageway to the evil worlds beyond. Ready to go, Doc? Oh, yes, yes, my dear fellow. I'll just check the gyroscopes. Hello, and welcome back to the Appendix N Book Club. This is episode 18 on Fritz Leiber's Swords Against Death. I am Jeff, and with me is the roguish swordsman Hoy. Hello, Jeff, you barbarian from the northern wastes. <laughs> and our very special guest, Jen Brinkman. Hello there. Hello, Jen. Hi, Jen Brinkman. So excited to have you on. I'm excited to be here. For the first time. Um, a little nervous, <laughs> even, yeah. <laughs> that in air quotes. For the, yeah, exactly, for the, in air quotes. Because um, actually, Jen is being very, very gracious with her time here. Uh, we had actually previously recorded this episode, and the podcast gremlins ate it up. So we're re-recording this episode out of order. Um, we've actually since recorded episodes 19 and 20, but now we're going back in time to re-record episode 18. <laughs> Uh, so thank you so much, Jen, for taking the time to come back with us more than a month later to re-record this episode. Ah, I'll, I'll try to remember, you know, the book. And <laughs> exactly, we're, we're pretty loose around here. I mean, you've you've heard our episodes. We're pretty we're pretty shaggy around the edges. <laughs> <laughs> so, Jen, do you mind starting off with telling us a little bit about your history with gaming and the Appendix N? Oh goodness. Um, I had actually not been exposed to much of either until I met this guy that I ended up marrying mm. and uh, started out with the horror-based RPGs, Yeah, actually starting with Vampire the Masquerade and Call of Cthulhu was my very first sit-down role-play game. And then we started going through, um, I believe 3.5 was out at that time, so I cut my teeth on D&D with 3.5 and kind of worked my way back through third, second, and first edition, which is about the same time that uh, Dungeon Crawl Classics role-playing game came out. And that just really struck the right chord. And so I have been a fervent acolyte of DCC RPG ever since. Mm. And you're also no stranger to podcasting because you are also a any award-winning podcaster. Isn't that right? Um, well, any award pod. Oh my God. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Words. Yeah. Uh, coming from any award-winning podcaster, Judge Jeff. Uh, <laughs> For those who aren't. Shall not cast on stones. <laughs> For those who aren't. In on the inside joke, uh, Jen Brinkman and I are both on another podcast together called Spellburn, uh, a podcast about Dungeon Crawl Classics. But Jen, you are also on another podcast about, about the Appendix N. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah. I, embarrassingly, I have to say I, I was forced into starting a second podcast uh, by the the lovely Judge Jim Wampler. <laughs> and as it turns out, it's actually been pretty fun. So we have Sanctum Secorum which is uh, sanctum.media. And we go over pieces of Appendix N and really dive into how well they fit with Dungeon Crawl Classics and how you can actually import them into your existing DCC games. 
Very cool. That's super exciting. And it's a fantastic podcast. Anybody who's a fan of this show, I encourage you to check out Sanctum Secorum. Uh, I've been listening to it since the beginning, and uh, it is a damn good show. Jen, I have a question about Sanctum Secorum. What is your process for selecting the books that are actually uh, discussed on that podcast? Um, there's a proverbial dartboard. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> it's not scientific. I mean, sometimes it's uh, just something in the era or by one of the authors. Like, I think we've done twos, two or three Zelazny books now that aren't even listed in Appendix N alongside the Amber Chronicles, which is by Zelazny. But yeah, we just did our third Zelazny book. And. Yeah, still haven't touched the Amber Chronicles. Right. I think maybe by 2023, we'll have done our third Zelazny book. <laughs> and you guys have even done a movie. Uh, we did. Uh, we did The the Raven. That was, that was a lot of fun. And boy, you can definitely see some of the origins of uh, where they got things like Magic Missile. Mm-hmm. Yep, yep. So it was Absolutely. very entertaining. Great. Well, thank you. So we're going to go ahead and uh, discuss the actual book that we are reading for this episode, which is Fritz Leiber's Swords Against Death. This is the second in the series of the Thafford and Greymouser sagas. And the physical copy that I have in my hand is the 1970 Ace paperback with this uh, Jeffrey Catherine Jones cover of what looks like some kind of a Poseidon sea god kind of hovering above one figure in a wind-tossed mm-hmm. sailboat. Very evocative. Uh, we do have a, uh, an ocean story in here, but of course, it's the both of them on the boat. So maybe, uh, you know, Baffert is hiding behind the sail here on this one or something. Well, at one point, one <laughs> of them gets knocked off into the water. So this could be at that point. That's true. That's and true. Uh, Hoy, which copy are you working with today? I have the White, Hor- uh, White Horse, White Wolf hardcover Ilmet and Lankmar with a Mike Mignola uh, end, uh, end papers and dust jacket, uh, best known for uh, Hellboy fame. And this actually is uh, called Ilmet and Lankmar and has the first two books. So the second half of the book is the uh, Swords Against Death. And then it has some nice uh, chapter headings. And there's also a nice introduction from Fritz Leiber and Mike Moorcock in the volume itself. So it was a pretty nice collection from the late 90s which I grabbed and it's been sitting on my shelf ever since. And Jen, what, which copy are you working off of today? Uh, regretfully, it's nothing hardcover or fancy. Uh, I have two of the collections from Fantasy Masterworks collected in 2001. And the first book has, uh, looks like everything, the first four books through Swords Against Wizardry. And the second volume has Swords of Lankmar, Swords and Ice Magic, and the Knight and Knave of Swords. Very cool. Very nice. I also have those sitting on my shelves as well, and they're very nice collections. They're okay. compact, which was very good for uh, ease of travel. <laughs> yeah, and considering how much how much text they have in them, it's surprising how portable they actually are. Now, before we head on over to a library, we're going to quickly reveal our Hygaxian word of the day. Ledger domain. Ledger domain. And a ledger domain is the skillful use of one's hands when performing uh, when performing conjuring tricks. And I found this on uh, two different places in the book. One is on page 14, where it says here, the mouser entertaining by ledger domain juggling and buffoonery. And then on page 33, it is used once again, saying, in order to amuse her and win her confidence, the master began to perform small feats of ledger domain. 
So basically the uh, David Blaine of Lankmar. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> oh, that's horrible. <laughs> <sighs> with, with apologies. <laughs> so now let's head on over to the library. And um, while we're here, let's start with you, Jen. Jen, what is your, what is your favorite story from this collection? Uh, you know, I was actually torn between two of them. There's such an evocative feel in the Howling Tower, and mm. it, it's kind of dark and bleak, but has a very fitting outcome. But I have to say that my ultimate favorite from this collection is Claws from the Night. I, Ooh, good I th- choice. I think the Winged Taya is probably uh, my my favorite, uh, shall we say, supernatural patron throughout the books. Yeah, she is incredibly cool, and that is a really fun story. Um, that, that one actually has some complexity to the the villain, which is not that's not always apparent in some of the other books too. I think. So, mm-hmm. Yeah. Let's uh, tell us a little bit more about Claws of the Night. Then I guess that's the eighth story in the book. Yes, and it it starts out with everything going kind of haywire in the city because all of these women are being robbed of their jewels, even while they're wearing them, by birds coming down and and grabbing them and taking them somewhere, uh, to the point where a lot of the richer women take to this trend of wearing bird cages on their head to prevent the theft (laughs) of their jewels. And it it even says in kind of an epilogue of this particular story that, you know, the fashion eventually died out. (laughs) I I love that image. Yes. Yeah. I just, I want to see a whole bunch of people walking down the street together and all their finery and these like brass and, and plain wrought iron bird cages over their entire heads. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, totally. Yeah. What about you, Jeff? What were uh, one of some couple of stories that jumped out at you? Well, um, actually, what I'll go ahead and also say is one of the things I really, really enjoyed about Taya is there's this this great line where she says, uh, I am the winged priestess, mistress of the hawks. I am the clawed queen. I am the one who visits suitable injury on the haughty and voluptuous women of Lankmar. (laughs) And that just cracked me up. I don't know. I thought that was great. Well, isn't that because she thought her husband was cheating on her? Something like that. It's in, uh, and listeners, please excuse us. This isn't as fresh in our memory since we <laughs> did yeah, read this and well. record this two months <laughs> right. previously. Um, I mean, there was this, the, her husband is sort of a, a sort of a nouveau riche, right? And he kind of married, and she was from an older, ancient, kind of but impoverished noble family. But that was the uh, yeah, and she was, I think, feeling very resentful, like he was kind of uh, whole, like he like had her trapped because of you know, right? Yeah, and he was this fat, gross kind of guy. With and a she felt eye. like she was being with yeah. a <laughs> <laughs> totally. Yeah. So carry on, Jeff. What else uh, jumps out at you in terms of uh, some of the stories that were in here? Sure. So I like Jen. I like Jen. Uh, I comma <laughs> like Jen. I <laughs> uh, have kind of two stories that I'm torn between. For me, it would be kind of I'm torn between the thieves' house and the bazaar of the bazaar. But I, I think my favorite is probably The Thieves' House, which is the third in this story, which is the third collection in this book. And basically in The Thieves' House, what ends up happening is Fafford and Grey Mouser once again infiltrate the Thieves' Guild. And they get into a big fight in there. 
And there's this moment where uh, Mouser manages to escape, but um, but Fafford ends up kind of going into the bowels of the thieves' house, and in it ends up unearthing or discovering these kind of like ancient mummies that were, I guess, the original the original rulers of the thieves' guild or the original rulers of Linkmar or something, and um, ends up kind of uh, unearthing these guys. And there's all this fun stuff where Mouser is then kind of off doing his own thing where he disguises himself as a witch and ends up trying to uh, trick the lover of the recently assassinated uh, head of the Thieves Guild. Um, and there's just a lot of like really kind of fun mayhem that ensues from this. A lot of, a lot of flavor for the city of Lankmar and for Thieves Guild. I think it's both a really fun story to read and I think the prose is really strong in it. And I think it's really rich with, uh, with, with gaming possibilities as well. So it kind of excited me. Uh, it, it was firing on all cylinders for me. What oh. did you guys think? Oh, certainly. And the guild house itself is literally a dungeon in, in, the, in the classic sense of the word, right? Mm-hmm. Up, down, multiple levels, mm-hmm. going into darkness. Secret uh, passageways, traps. Mm-hmm. Uh, sure. And I think Ivalis is quite a strong character in her own right, who is the, uh, the lover of the... A former guild master. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, she's she's quite badass. Yeah, yeah. So uh, Jen, you had also mentioned the Howling Tower as one of your favorites. Yes, yes. That, that imagery, I I just it's nice and bleak. Yeah, when he finally when Mouser goes up and finds Fawford with those wounds, and yeah, the, I mean he finds his friend all bandaged up and this little old guy saying, "Oh well, this is the potion that could cure him." Maybe it was almost reminiscent of like a dreamland sequence. Mm-hmm. I can uh, see that. There, there was, devilish choices that you have. Yes, yes, and I, I admit that at the time I was also reading a, a an A merit story, and uh, yeah, they started blending for me for a while, so I just had to put both of them down. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it's definitely easy to get sucked down the rabbit hole with Merritt because he's so sort of dense in the language. You kind of just sink into it like a, you know, like a oversized pillow, I guess. <laughs> yeah, and as of yet, you know, because we're now recording this in the future or the past, or now this timeline is all messed up. <laughs> I, uh, when we last recorded this, I hadn't read any Merritt. Now that we are recording this in the future, um, I have read Merritt, but I haven't read any fantasy Merritt yet. So the only Merritt I've read to date is uh, contemporary uh, in his contemporary time. So in the 1930s or 40s, I forget which. Um, one thing about the Howling Tower that struck me, though, as a little a little quibble that I had with it, because listeners of the show know that I, I'm, I'm prone to pick nits. Um, one quibble I had with the Howling Tower is during the previous uh, during the previous story, the bleak shore, we are taken across this ocean to a continent that may or may not exist, or possibly to the far side of the continent they're already on. Fafford and Greymouser themselves don't quite know, even though they've been all over their own continent. And once we get to the other side, the story, the Howling Tower takes place. And then in the t- story after that, the sunken land, they return. And although I love the story, The Howling Tower, placing it on this far off continent across the ocean seemed like a strange choice to me just because it seemed like it could have taken place anywhere on Nawan. You know, it seemed like culturally these people seem to have been of the same culture. And I just imagine what it would have been like for 
those first Vikings who landed <laughs> on the North American, who landed on North American land and encountered Native American cultures, the, the Native Americans and the Vikings both must have seen these people as complete aliens. And Fafford and Grey Mouse are walking to the Howling Tower and the people they meet and the things they do, it doesn't seem anywhere near as alien to me as I would have liked. And I don't know, I think it may have just been some retconning on the on the side of Fritz Leiber to kind of make it work in placement. But I don't know. What, what Did you guys have thoughts about that? I do, but I would like to hear Jen's thoughts. And also, Jen, you're much more familiar with the chronology of when these stories were written, right? I know some of these are out of order. These are in the internal chronology. I do have the luxury of having... Um Michael Curtis's bibliography. Uh, Michael Curtis, of course, being the guy that wrote the Liber licensed Lankmar setting for Dungeon Crawl Classics. Which uh, also I'm going to quickly interject and say we neglected to mention in the introduction that Jen Brinkman is the editor of this. I, I, I may may have had something to do with line editing, yes. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, in fact, I was just looking through this though i've got the list of the the books that are in swords against death and the second through fifth you know jewels in the forest thieves house bleak shore howling tower and the sunken land appear in that order in this book but the very first five works written by liber starting in 1939 were the jewels in the forest the bleak shore the howling tower the sunken land and then thieves house so he he, he wrote these in this four year span, uh, but they kind of got switched in order. So I I'm with you. I think the Howling Tower may have shown a little bit better, say before the Bleak Shore or after the Sunken Land. They're not written in chronological order as far as Fawford and Greymouser's lives. I mean the this it. It's a matter of taste, I think. <laughs> yeah. I, I actually mm-hmm. preferred starting with Swords and Deviltry with the induction and the snow women and the unholy grail into Ilmet and Lankmar so that you got that backstory and the history first. And that's what makes them such tight friends. Mm-hmm. Sure. I mean, and I'm generally in favor of internal chronologies. Uh, yeah, and, and I think honestly, starting with Jewels in the Forest, I I think that rings very similar to Robert E. Howard's The Jewels of Qualor. Mm-hmm. And so the reading that one first may actually not be to someone's taste. Uh, and then they're wondering, okay, well, why are these two together? And, and you know, it. it it was originally published as the title Two Sought Adventure, which, you know, in, in a small publication, I, I could see that maybe not getting as much hype as the jewels in the forest. But no, I, sure. I, I'll stand by the, f- I'm a fan of reading it in their life. And as far as chronological order. Yeah, it's right. just and really interesting to look at the bibliography and see where things were written. Like Ilmet and Lankmar was nineteen seventy. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So and- thirty years later, he yeah. comes up with the the biggest meat of their backstory. Mm-hmm. And you, it also, I think uh, you had mentioned also to a certain extent, it reflects what was going on in 
Liber's life, because definitely the tone of the later stories is sort of darker and more cynical than some of the earlier stories. Um, and then, you know, as you had mentioned that they sort of age, not quite in real time, but they do age, unlike sort of Conan, who always seems to be more or less at his peak, in, at least in the stories that we've read so far. Mm-hmm. Right, right. Well, I'm, yeah, and uh, Jeff, I don't know how far you've read. Did you get to Swords and Ice Magic yet? After the Swords of no. Lycmar? Um, I have not. So, spoiler, uh, Fawford loses a hand. Um, oh, no. <laughs> and Luke. bigger spoiler, he doesn't regain it. There, there's no, <laughs> you know, magical loss of continuity. It's actually kept throughout. And so it, it's so intriguing to me that even though they're not cohesive pieces all written at once, there's still that bit of continuity that is maintained because it's an important part of their development. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's a good point because I think in some ways, for example, Conan is quite iconic. Um, You know, he ages, he gains more power, but he doesn't really change in terms of his personality, whereas Fafford and the Mouser do by, you know, losing their first loves, drives them onto adventure and then later on you know various things sort of affect their personality sometimes they have falling outs with each other um so right i think that's a i think that's quite an interesting aspect of these characters so that they are more sort of a little bit down to earth than conan in some way sure and this specific <laughs> collection of stories also tries to address the narrative arc of their grief over the loss of ivrian and vlana at the end of the first collection as well, you know, starting off with the Circle Curse, where they leave Lankmar vowing never to come back again, travel the world for years during this one very, very brief, small story, and then end up working their way back to Lankmar after swearing they would never return. And then in the ninth, which is the second to last story in this collection, they end up basically taking um, patronage with... Um, with Ningobble of the Seven Eyes and Shilba of the Eyeless Face for the sole purpose of ridding themselves of their of their literal and figurative ghosts. Nicely put. <laughs> thank you, thank you. Um, and Hoy, I've, so yeah. Jen and I have shared our favorite stories in the collection. Um, what, what, what are yours? Hmm. I am going to say that rather than having favorites, I might have some that I don't like as much. Um, so... Oh, you're going to be the negative Nancy. I'm not necessarily the negative Nancy. I like them all. <laughs> That's um, usually me. No, I mean, I, qu- I quite like The Sunken Land. It's almost like an H.P. Lovecraft story. Um, <laughs> oh, yes. I think there's a lot of Lovecraft <laughs> yeah. influence in here. Yeah. yeah. It, the Sunken Land is very much like right. Dagon with Fafford and Grey Mouser. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so the muck and stuff. And actually, I do have this whole book that is um, uh, called Liber and Lovecraft. So there's all this correspondence with each other. Mm-hmm. And so it's not as well oh, known that nice. Liber... Yeah, Liber was actually in some ways brought into being a full-time writer through Lovecraft's input because mm-hmm. it was one of the um, one of the earlier stories he had written, uh, whichever one it is, where it's set in like the, the ancient Middle East. It was originally supposed to be they were originally supposed to be real-world characters, and then uh, essentially Lovecraft said, "No, this is great fantasy. Why don't you make it more straight-up fantasy?" Okay, um, I'm sure there's uh, a little bit more detail to that, but that was the the gist of it. Um, but anyway, Sunken Land, I think, was quite effective. It had, a, 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 again, sort of a Lovecraft vibe, and they you know, discover this. They basically are brought onto this crew of mute, vi- mute Vikings, although you find out it's really because they have a vow. And this crazy uh, crazy captain is basically Shanghai them onto this crew. Mm-hmm. And they discover 
sunken underwater city that has risen above the waves and they all go for treasure and bad things happen. Um, so that one I quite enjoyed. I would say one of my lesser favorites, as I was saying, as I was mentioning, I think might be Seven Black Priests. Um, that, again, they're still working their way back to Lankmar and then they keep on getting attacked by these sort of uh, small, uh, I guess they're, they're described as being black, although not necessarily African uh, they're so, uh priests who were you know have trying to ambush them all the time with little blow guns and roll mm-hmm. boulders down on them um it does have one of the funniest images though of the one of the guys i think he's rolling down the hill and he basically becomes like a big snowball uh-huh. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but the um so I, I think that one is is um sort of comic i think my problem with that one is not so much the the comedy value or the potentially problematic uh racial depictions as is just a sense of scale like i'm trying to figure picture this mountain that they're climbing on which is supposed to be this giant face uh-huh. right and somehow it seems to be both enormous but then relatively easy for them to scale uh-huh. right so i was just trying to mentally my picture was not quite as locked in as some of the other stories i see um and interestingly i actually thought that one of the best prose moments in the entire collection was actually from that story. There's a moment on page 167 that I made a note of, and it says, the coal fire flamed, the strange glow from the pit pulsed wanly. The mouser found it decidedly pleasant to be in between the dry heat of the former and the moist warmth of the latter, both spiced by the chill air from outside. He watched the play of shadows through half-closed eyes. I feel like that little section right there is just, it's so rich and it's not only engaging all of the five senses. It's also like, it's talking about like the, like the quality of the air even. And I, I just feel like I could, in that moment, I could smell it. I could feel it. I was in that cave with them. That's definitely an effective piece. It's not like saying, oh, the tomb stank or, you know, the, any of the sort of things that we sort of, or the tomb was dusty, sort of things that we have just kind of glossed over, um, because I felt like that one appeals to the senses that most of us have had. We can feel that that heat or the dryness. Whereas when you say the ancient dusty tomb, most of us have not been in an ancient dusty tomb. So sure. we see that as prose and we sort of get it. But this one, we it's like that universal feeling of being sort of like toasty by a fire, but one half of your face is still a little cold or something like that. And even the ancient <laughs> dusty tomb, he does a really good job of making it like it's about the spices. Right. They like they like when in the thieves' house, when they're going down into the, into the, the bowels of the thieves' house, you know, they're smelling this like very kind of spiced air and clearly it's whatever it was that they used to like mummify these people. Mm-hmm. Um, so as you mentioned, what was my other sort of lesser favorite was probably actually Jewels in the Forest. Um, although it's quite effective. It's very much like a D&D adventure, right? There's traps and, you know, they're, they're making a beeline towards the treasure. Um, but it seems a little bit more random, right? There's that uh, other priest who comes mm-hmm. who's uh, supposedly going to lift this curse and then he's just like squashed like a bug on the next page or something like yeah, that. Yeah, Arvlon, the priest <laughs> of the great god. Right. <laughs> um, so I guess it shows that it's an earlier story, right? It hasn't quite quite gelled. But it's still quite a good story. It's just not, um, you know, quite to the level of the other stories would be my, my, my feeling on that one. And Arvlon is actually kind of a fun potential seg- segue into our gaming aspect because one of the things that I think is kind of neat and fun about the DCC RPG upcoming Linkmar box set is there is no cleric class. However, in um, <laughs> oh, <man. laughs> this is a, a we're going to get into goat, this again, aren't we? <laughs> a particular goad hobby horse. <laughs> <laughs> I like to talk about clerics a lot. So. Um, so Arvlon on page 52 says, no harm can befall me. The hand of the great God is poised above me, ready to ward off any danger that may threaten his faithful servants. His will is my will. 
So in that moment, he really does seem like he is a cleric. But then later on that page, he walks into the next room and is squashed to death. So <laughs> apparently the great God wasn't actually watching out for him. Well, he was so, the first level cleric. <laughs> <laughs> so maybe it's a great example of how maybe clerics really don't exist in well, Naewon. First, first level clerics don't have spells. In that. <laughs> <laughs> oh, good point. <laughs> <laughs> in classic D&D. <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, do you guys have any uh, specific things that um, came out to you as uh, things in this book that may have been kind of um, foundational kind of idea builders for OD&D or AD&D? Because I, 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 I found a lot in here. But what, what, did, what, do, you, what do you guys think? I see the uh, certainly the, the traps in jewels in the, in, in the forest. Yes. There's the idea of sort of like uh, sort of semi-abandoned locations mm-hmm. right so i mean this in case is not a dungeon but it's like this sort of semi-featureless temple so they're kind of poking around seeing it's that always that like when you get the players is there anything here to discover i look for secret doors right that's, <laughs> so that's, it's literally that feeling um and one of the traps i really liked that i saw at, in two different stories it appears both in the thieves house and in the claws from the night are these like noose traps where there is a person or a mind control bird who is lowering a um, a noose a noose down and like around your neck and then just like yanks it up or I forget maybe in Claws of the Night that is a person who's doing it I don't recall but I do know that the noose trap appears in two and I don't think I've ever encountered that in my gaming or encountered that in any kind of a written module anywhere and it's kind of a fun I will say that actually I ran Daniel Bishop's. Uh... Creeping Beauties of the Wood, mm-hmm. and there is on one of the random encounters a strangling vine, and it did get one of my players. So that was the first time I remember it happening, but that mm. was literally just two weeks ago. So that's why it pops in my mind. Okay, <laughs> <laughs> it too happened well, yes. in the future. Yeah. Yes, yeah, exactly. Uh, well, Thieves' House definitely. I mean, the, yes, the idea of a thieves' guild, and I love the fact that libraries created the thieves' guild. The Smugglers Guild, you know, the the Assassins Guild, the Whores Guild, you know, there's mm-hmm. a guild for everything. Right. Uh, and basically just drawing upon that, hey, like-minded people have to stay together. And, you know, if you've got to pay dues, whatever, it's for room and board. But yeah. the fact that Thieves House is, it's a proper noun and it is an entity unto itself, whether or not it is inhabited. Right, so it's like, I, a, like like a named dungeon, like Rappanathic or or something like that. In that sense, right, right. Yeah, no um, doubt. And also, I think the Thieves Guild is a great example. The Thieves Guild of Lankmar is a great example as to how you can play a lawful thief, because I think a lot of people working with the three alignment system or the nine point alignment system are always like, "Oh, thieves! They have to be chaotic." But like, there's a moment in Claws from the Night where they're trying to figure out who's responsible for all of these bird thefts. And people were, were a lot of them were saying that it was, probably wasn't the thieves guild because they were too, cons- they were too conservative and hidebound and were so unable to think kind of that creatively. And I think the idea of this like uh, very kind of organized structured guild with dues and memberships and ranks uh, is a really great uh, map for how you can play a lawful thief. Oh, exactly. And, you know, if you want to get into the Slayer's Guild as a fighter, you Mm -hmm. have a lawful method of taking out hits on people. Uh, (laughs) Same with the Assassin's Guild, really. They're kind of a a convergence of the two. Right. And and I think also 
maybe this is sort of to the extent where you get the sort of named level characters, right? Because there, isn't there some different grades of assassins, like at first, or the thieves? At first, you start off as, you know, a, a beggar or something like that, and then you can work your way up to, like, you know, master sh- safe crackers, so to speak. Mm. Um, so I think that's that sort of idea, too. You know, you have these different roles or responsibilities the higher up you get in your various guilds. Sure, sure. And also, every single one of these stories starts off with some kind of a MacGuffin, right. where, you know, this is the <laughs> thing that's going to send them on their adventure. And sometimes the MacGuffin is like a like in, I thought, although I agree that the Jewels in the Forest isn't one of the stronger stories, it does start off with kind of like a riddled map. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's kind of a treasure map that has a riddle on it. And that's kind of a fun way to start an adventure. But then also something like the Bleak Shore starts off with a geese as the MacGuffin. The characters have no control over the fact that their mind has been taken over with this desire to go on this adventure. And maybe if you brought that into your own gaming, it might be pretty railroady i guess <laughs> you well, meet with a little it. bit of pushback yeah right, right. <laughs> well they had a strong following win this is a uh, you know whatever the nautical equivalent of a railroad is i guess right <laughs> <laughs> but one thing i think well, is fun about both this not both with with this kothar and conan is oftentimes our heroes find themselves in situations where there are great vast treasures that they can't actually take with them for one reason or another. Oh yeah. That happens in sunken land too. Cause they, yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. in the sunken yeah. land in jewels in the forest, because like they can't, because it's literally a part of this, this being that is this tower, this living dungeon. Uh, and I think that's kind of a, it, it's, it's, it's a little bit of an F you to your players if you <laughs> do that too often. But I think occasionally it might be frustrating and kind of a fun and interesting way well jeff i have to say that playing at your table i think half of my characters have ended up not ever getting the treasure so thankfully <laughs> dcc is not xp for gold so. <laughs> that's a good well, point it's usually a mess up on our part but still you know <laughs> it's very big of you to admit that hoy <laughs> my players would never <laughs> <laughs> it's always Although I was fault. really impressed that you guys got into the treasure vault in the Wizardarium of Calabraxis because yeah. that is one of the harder treasure vaults to get into. And you guys did manage to do that. that but it is true that in most of the adventures that I've run for you guys, right. you guys managed to miss all of the we treasure missed, room. We missed it in Sunken City. We missed it in <laughs> Cannibal Slaves of the Moon Kingdom. <laughs> well, you guys missed everything in Cannibal right. Slaves. You guys so, yeah. so we're, we're led just, that one um, in defeat. You know, we're sort of like the uh, we're like the Tom of Tom and Jerry. We're the Tom of adventurers. <laughs> oh, man. Yeah, we just finished uh, Barrier to the Expedition Peaks, and yeah, we missed probably about a, a good third of all of the available stuff that we could have brought back with us. Sure. Like we were one chest away from the uh, or one uh, chest. Is that how we want to call them? That that yeah futuristic chess of um, power right. armor. <laughs> right. So no power armor sp- now. Space chest. <laughs> the space chest. Yeah. Oh, the the uh, big metal crates, yeah. The, uh, the uh, pelican cases of, uh, of the <laughs> D&D world. It would be also happens in this book it would be nice to have in the games although again maybe your players would try to strangle you is to try to separate them from their treasure after they've gotten it which i you know which is why a lot of people have created like carousing rules mm-hmm. and, you know homebrewed carousing rules or research rules so yeah. if you want to learn spells and stuff like that i think it is important to keep the players hungry mm-hmm. you know so if you want them to be like faffer the gray master i mean if your eventual goal is the main game that's a different story yeah if you're playing wow. the ad style where you need to get three million gold pieces to create your Citadel or whatever, then 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 yeah, that's it's a different kind of game. But I, I agree. 
Not for nothing, but there's carousing rules in the Judge's Guide to Naewon. Uh-huh. Oh, very exciting. Oh, it Jen. is. Uh, we we ran an entire camp. I, I should say I played in an entire year of campaign play for the playtesting. And there were days where Bob would show up to run the game, just have us roll on the carousing chart to see what we'd done after the last adventure. And the next adventure was right there. Now, Jen, I know that you are very intimately familiar with the contents of the Lankmar box set, and I totally understand and respect that you cannot share everything with us. However, are there any parts of the the Lankmar setting that you can share with us that you think are especially flavorful for the Nawan Lankmar universe? Yes, one of my favorite parts is actually the city book. Uh, Lankmar, City of the Black Toga, because mm-hmm. it goes through and lists all of the 13 quarters of this, the country, the land of Lankmar itself. You know, whether it's the Plaza of Dark Delights or Thieves' House itself or the Richmond's Quarter, there are tables for generating encounters in each of these quarters. And stats for some of the higher known people, you know, like the uh, the money lender that Atia was married to, or Atia herself Mush. prior. Yes, Mush oh, cool. the money lender. <laughs> and we also get stats for our duo in three different phases of their lives. So, kind of representing representing the the literature itself. You know, if you want to have your party meet them or even dare I say fight them uh, you've got them in in their young scrappy youth or as a little bit more seasoned or as they're getting on toward the the uh, rye mile their rye mile time no I think that's a really cool that they um, that the Fafford and the mouser will be portrayed in those different stages of their lives uh, both from the standpoint of just emulating fiction but also sort of as a way to sort of gauge where your characters are at. I think right. that would be really interesting or, or for the judge to say, Oh, okay. This is how Fafford or Fafford and the mouse were. And this is how, the, how powerful they were at that point. So this is how I could pitch run that sort of that very similar adventure with my player characters at, you know, level one, level three, level five, however yeah. powerful they are at that point. Um, not to say that we're, you know, bound by, you know, so, so-called challenge ratings or anything like that, but just as sure. a general sort of mental map for yourself. And one thing that I I really enjoyed about – another thing I enjoyed about the Thieves' House story is in the very end of the Thieves' House story, they mention how everything changed to the Thieves' Guild after this, after the the rising of whatever it was that that, um, Fafford had found. And how afterwards – in fact, actually, maybe I can find the, the language they used. Hold on one second. And these are the undead former uh, guild masters that have risen out of the, the, the catacombs beneath the Thieves' House, right? That you're, yeah. Yes, it says, Thereafter, it was noted in Lankmar that thieves were fewer, and it was rumored that the Thieves' Guild conducted strange rites at full moon, descending into deep cellars and worshipping some sort of ancient gods. So I really dig that the stories uh, – or let me rephrase that. I really dig that Fafford and Grey Mouser have the ability – to change the world around them, which I think is an important thing to remember both when you're writing fiction, but also when you are playing these games. 
you know, like, for example, when I was playing in uh, Judge Jen's Lankmar playtest, when I was uh, at Brinkmanomicon, uh, my character spill burned the crap out of herself and ended up basically exploding all of the Plaza of Dark Delights with a um, with a color spray spell <laughs> with a max level color spray. <laughs> but that's but it's fun that like, you know, your characters can have an everlasting effect on on the world that you're in. And I think as a judge and as a dungeon master, it, the ability to embrace that and roll with that, I think speaks a lot to kind of your your um in I don't know how to finish that sentence. <laughs> I get it. I think I think it's important, especially DCC, because it's so swingy. There's so many ways that the players can utterly mess up the, your best laid plans. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. You definitely have to be able to roll with it and not get outraged and kick over the table like you might do if you had some sort of much more planned progression. Like I don't I don't want to name any games because I I don't want to. Yeah, I think it's more just a matter of DM or judge style. But, sure. But you know, if you're creating some really TikTok game world and your, your player somehow managed to F it up, you could just go into an utter rage. But then you have to remember it's not just for you, right? You're having it for everybody. Totally. It is a shared experience. Right. Now, uh, speaking of- Cooperative storytelling. Exactly. <laughs> thank you. And speaking of DCC, I feel like one of the biggest things that we got in DCC from the library stories, which we did not get in Dungeons and Dragons, are patrons. And Jen, can you tell us a little bit, for for those who are listening who aren't familiar with Dungeon Crawl Classics, can you tell us a little bit about what patrons are in Dungeon Crawl Classics and why my statement about them relate, um, about them coming from the story um, (laughs) (laughs) is relevant? Oh, I, you know, I hesitate to do this uh, because you, you have to first look at clerics and the fact that they have the deities Mm -hmm. from which they directly get their power. So Mm -hmm. it stands to reason that wizards can also get power from something besides a book. Mm -hmm. And so they have supernatural beings that they can invoke. Mm -hmm. And in fact, technically speaking, anybody, any class in DCC can have a patron. Mm -hmm. And the Lankmar setting really embraces that, you know, you have Shielba, you have Ningobble, you have the Winged Taya, you have mm-hmm. uh, Isek of the Jug. And even if you are not a caster, you can still have them as a patron. And uh, there's a new mechanic called the Patron Die, which, uh, yeah, it depends on how you want to play it. You could just let people invoke them, you know as you would normally through regular DCC. Uh, I I love the fact that even as a warrior, I I was in the playtest, I played a warrior from the Cold Waste, and I could roll the patron die alongside my action, and as long as I got a lower result on that patron die, I could actually invoke the patron that I was trying to communicate with and maybe get a little get a little handout or something something you know mm-hmm. <laughs> but in exchange that's a debt you now owe to that patron mm-hmm. so you have the debts and boons from your patrons and whatnot uh, you know of course if you are a caster the higher the more powerful you get and the more favors that you successfully perform uh, you stand to learn new spells from your patron directly. Uh, 
And of course, this new setting has many options for that. Get out the mist and frozen breath magic from Koss is one of my favorites. Mm -hmm. Uh, But it, it also stands to mention that the Lankmar box set is meant to... It's meant to be used for anybody familiar with the Dungeon Crawl Classics role-playing game. Mm-hmm. You don't have to run it literary style. You can just set something in this world, in, in the land of Nawan, and have your your basic seven characters, your halflings and your clerics and everything else. Mm-hmm. Or you can run it literary style wherein you have a thief, a wizard, and a warrior. Those are your three classes to choose from. Suck it up. <laughs> I love that. Jen, I have a follow-up question on that, which is... uh, Yeah, I have a follow-up question on that because you just mentioned that obviously you can play literary style and then sort of classic DCC. So what do you think is the most effective way to bring people to the Naewon mythos, the Naewon stories? Because it's definitely not vanilla fantasy, right? It's its its own thing. It's urban fantasy. And so you're having possibly the same adventures, just you're not out in the wilds. You're not in a dungeon per se. Uh, And there are real repercussions to some of your actions here. Mm -hmm. If you get caught by the watch, you might be rolling up a new character depending on how bad the sentence is. If you're going with the strict feel of it and and the literary sense. Now, if you just want to run something in in a fantasy style and, oh, just Go visit the temple district and, you know, hedge your bets, see who you find. That can be done, too. Right. I think it's actually quite telling. Uh, You know, Jeff and I were both here in Brooklyn, so, you know, the biggest of, you know, cities in the United States. (laughs) And and Liber was a very cosmopolitan guy. He was in Chicago, San Francisco, New York at various points in his life. So I think he's bringing a different thing than, say, Robert E. Howard was in small town Texas. Right, sure. the stories were much more tend to be much more in the wilderness, so to speak. Um, so I think uh, you know, I guess gaming is is all across the country, but obviously there is a certain component of gaming which was sort of the rural upper Midwest or semi rural upper Midwest, and that sort of infects that flavor of classic D anD D. And I think it wasn't until right, they they all seem kind of um, European Hamlet, you know, village based. Yeah. If you do have a city, yeah. Right. That's Until true. I guess City State of the Invincible Overlord came along, and that, but that's telling that that was uh, you know a judges guild project product and not a. But even that's still very like kind of Eurocentric. You know, it's right. still it's it's still somewhat based in kind of middle middle medieval Europe and in, right. in, in, a, in a very kind of skewed version of that. But it's still white people in, a, in with medieval technology primarily. Kind of a product of its time, maybe. Yeah. No. Absolutely. Absolutely. Right. I think Lankmar feels a lot more like say. Um, Venice or maybe Constantinople because it's sort of a meeting point of all these various cultures. That's true. Know. Yeah. Well, and it, it's almost um, industrial England, right. I mean, London, if, if you want to take that point of view, right. because it's dirty, it's gritty. The air yeah. is never clean in the city of Lankmar. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> Even in the rich men's district, and you, know, you have the overlords, and no, they're still holding cloths to their mouth. So I have a, a, a potentially controversial question for you guys. So uh, Fafford and Grey Mouser in the story The Bleak Shore, 
they part of the reason that they're able to get to the other the other side of the continent or rather the other side of the ocean is that they get their mingle slaves to uh, power their ship across the across the seas. Uh, how would you guys feel about having your characters own slaves in your own games? Hmm. Would you permit it? Does slavery exist in your games? And if so, is it something that you would allow your characters to? I would prefer to call them hirelings. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. Because uh, we we do have, you know, shall we say generally people of color and different mm-hmm. ethnicities mm-hmm. playing in our games. Mm-hmm. And no, we're, we're, I'm not going out like that. <laughs> <laughs> Hoy? Um, I am open to, I guess it's really always dependent on the group. And, and even with the group, let's say you're playing at an open table, there's always the potential, the other tables around you misunderstanding what you're trying to do. Mm-hmm. So I think that if we're going to do that, I think it's, it's worth exploring in the game to see, you know, if you want to create the social structures that are around and say, you do the player characters push back against the social structures or they become part of that social structure. Um, so I do think it's worth it with the absolute consent and buy-in of your players, mm-hmm. right? Uh, that, but I definitely would be very leery of it in a open table setting, convention yeah. setting of any sort like that. Sure. And so that's that's probably what my conclusion is. But uh, you know, again, one of my interests is history. So if I wanted to play a historical game, you know, I can either gloss it all over, or I can say, here's the thing. You know, we we're talking about Spanish conquistadors. You you have a choice. Do you want to, you know? For example, you know, pillage the Aztecs, or do you want to sort of play a slightly more ahistorical game, you know, where you all become allies against some other, you know, Mm -hmm. mystical evil or something like that. So um, it's finding that it's fine tuning that with the players that you have at your table, I guess, is is, and maybe that's kind of a weaselly way to say it. But I think that's really the only way to do it. No, I think that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. And I think looking at the world of Naewon, you know, sure, you have Lankmar, which is kind of a crossroads. And uh, but still, the majority of the inhabitants of Lankmar do seem that uh, that they're presumed white. Most of them have been presumed kind of Euro. And then we've got the the Kush, the Kushites to the south. We've got the Mingles to the far east. We've got the kingdoms of the Ghouls, who are these people who have trans, translucent, transparent skin. And you can see their organs and their their skeletons. And one thing that I think might be interesting uh, is to potentially play a campaign, if not in Nawan, at least in some kind of a fantasy world where maybe you don't, maybe it's not assumed that you're in the, the, the Euro version of that world, where maybe instead you're playing the ghouls and there's like the white folk kingdom to the left <laughs> and the black kingdom to the right and the Asian kingdom to the, uh, or, or, or maybe even just like eschewing all of that. But right. Well, um, I think um, Jeff McKinney does that in the Carcosa, right? He creates all these like multicolored, you know, races. You know, here's the oh, does he? Right, right. And he's like, here's the red, here's the orange pin, and he makes up some colors. Also, <laughs> sure. <laughs> um, hmm, good question. Um, I guess it's a question of sort of balancing, like wanting to have exoticism without it being sort of tokenistic. Mm-hmm. Like, hey, you know, samurai and and you know, kung fu warriors is really cool, right? But can we do that without it just being you know, chop sake theater? Sure, sure. Right, right? <laughs> And I understand why it is that way, because as you were saying, this was this the 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 hobby was primarily created by these people kind of in the upper Midwest, and those people are primarily white. And if they were setting it in kind of like African nations and Asian nations, then 
either A, they might feel intimidated because they don't have enough of a cultural reference, or B, it might just end up devolving into racial stereotyping um, and actually not end up turning out uh, to be so uh, helpful. <laughs> right. And, and I, I don't want to say that people can't do these things. I think um, I'm one of those people that doesn't believe that you have to be of a particular group or orientation or lifestyle to sort of depict that. Mm-hmm, sure. Right. But it, it does, you it just it brings an extra level of responsibility if you are going to do that. Yes. Right. And, and it's okay to do it and not be like 100% informed about it. I mean, hopefully that process is what informs you. You yeah. know what I'm saying? So I, I think it's okay to say, I want to do Asian adventures or adventure set in sub-Saharan Africa, but you know, when possible err on the side of doing a little bit more homework. Sure. <laughs> right? Sure. And if you don't know, default to something that's similar, just assume, for example, okay, well, we're in Africa. Uh, you know, if you don't know that there's cities, assume that there are cities, right? Just back to the, <laughs> right? Don't assume that it was just, you know, the savannah and huts, right? Yeah. <laughs> right. Uh, assume that you could do anything that you would have done in your sort of medieval flavored, Euro medieval flavored adventure, right? And then go from there rather than making the opposite assumption. Sure, sure. Right? And then and then do the homework to back it up if you need to, right? I like that. Um, I don't know. What do you think, Jen? I'm going to defer to you guys on this one. No um, problem. I- <laughs> so, Jen, before we wrap up, because uh, we're running out of time here, is there any? Is there one last thing that you feel like you want to say about this story or about its uh, relation to the the grand the grander scheme of role playing that we haven't yet discussed that you would like to quickly address? I will say that I really enjoy the fact that Claws from the Night was originally titled Dark Vengeance. Mm. Ooh, nice. Which is kind of evocative when you think of all of these black crows and ravens just descending from the skies to steal or kill or whatnot. Um, yeah, no, I... I I think Liber is a product. Liber's writing is a product of the times, but I can definitely appreciate it for its originality and what it's contributed to the gaming. And it, I will say that of all of them that I've read, it seems to be one of the least uh, misogynistic. So I appreciate that as well. <laughs> I would agree with that wholeheartedly. And one last thing that I would like to throw out there from having read this is if you want, if you as a PC want to steal some stuff, don't think small. You can steal a whole house. (laughs) That's true. At one point, Baffert and Graymaster steal a whole house. Uh, Hoy, do you have any kind of last thoughts that you really wanted to share with us before we wrap up? Um, No, I think uh, you guys have really brought us, you know, food for thought. Um, I do love the setting, but I've always been a city kid. So I think that sort of explains it more mm-hmm. than emphasizing. You know, I love Westerns too, but I don't really have a mental picture other than from the movies of what, sure. you know, howling wilderness is like. I've always tried to avoid going into deep forests. <laughs> 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 right. so. Fair enough. Right. All right, great. So we're going to go ahead and wrap up the next two episodes, which we have already recorded, uh, will be episode 19, <laughs> Jack Vance's Eyes of the Overworld. And episode 20 will be A Merit's Burn Witch Burn. And both of those episodes have exciting special guests as well. And um, the next episode after that, episode 21, we haven't recorded yet. So um, that, that will be on Margaret St. Clair's The Shadow People, which is pretty exciting. Very exciting. Kind of a Can't rarity wait to for find. That one. 
Yeah, that'll be fun. That was the very first episode of Sanctum Secorum was on Margaret St. Clair's The Shadow People. It was. Long live Adderkorn. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So um, if you guys get a chance, it would be it would uh, be very helpful to us if you could go to iTunes and leave us a review and a rating that does help um, help spread our visibility on the podcast app. Uh, also, if you have any questions or comments you'd like to send to us, you can email us at appendixnbookclub at gmail.com. Um, and you can also follow us or tweet us, us uh, tweet at us at Twitter. Our, uh, our Twitter handle, handle <laughs> is appendix underscore N. Uh, you can also go to our website. That's appendixnbookclub.com. And there you can find the show notes, uh, various other resources uh, relating to Appendix N, including how to find some of these works. And if you would like to uh, meet us up and meet up with us in real life, you can always go to meetup.com, DCCNYC. Is that right? Yeah, slash DCCNYC. Slash DCCNYC. Um, so. All right. So, Jen, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. <laughs> okay. See you in the stacks, everybody. Read on. The library is closed.